rivière rubis, vaine parure du corps. Voici la Rianne. Good afternoon and welcome to Isotopica with me Simon Tushko on Resonance 104.4 FM on your London radio dial. Um, today in Isotopica we shall have a few further jigsaw pieces, um, elements that will become further episodes of Isotopica as the show twists, turns, expands and detours. We're going to start off with some truly delicious and sensual experimental electronica from uh, Mika Vagno, who is one of the founders of Pansonic, who I would hope lots of you are familiar with. Um, there's going to be some Hawaiian music, which is a very curious genre, and today I'll be playing some track or two from Johnny Pineapple and his Orc as it was written on an album I picked up in a boot fair sometime in the 80s and it became a kind of ironic favourite at the time. Hawaiian music to me always seems somewhat like the music we'd listen to in a kind of post-apocalyptic age. Um, it's uh, the ironic music of the dystopia, I'm sure. It's interesting stuff. I've worked with it in a few projects. Um, I'm going to be asking some questions and starting the process of answering them, one of which is where do artists get their studios from and what do artists do in their studios? Um, having just moved into a new place provided by Akava, um, I'm going to play a recording of my first meeting with the head of Akaba, where we discuss what we will be doing in future episodes of Isotopica, talking about artist studios. And at some point, I'll be putting the question, where do alcoholics and drug addicts go? Where do those people that slightly go, or possibly like a rocket ship, go beyond the pale at parties, end up? Where do they go and what do they do? And um, I'm going to be dealing with that a little bit more in future episodes. And today we shall dip our toe into that field. And by the time I've finished recording this episode, who knows what I will have added in? Da 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 da, the mystery returns. Anyway, let's get on and listen to today's edition of Isotopia. It's Simon Tishko. It's a beautiful rainy evening in April in London. And an Isotopia has been played in the afternoon.
Have you ever wondered where all the artists go to work? Where are these mythical things called artist studios? Um, and how do artists afford them? It's something that has perplexed and puzzled me in my professional practice as an artist over the years. Um, recently I discussed on this show moving into a new studio space in Battersea, albeit a temporary one, it's really quite an amazing one. And one of the things about the studio is actually a school that has closed down and is in between stages of um, redevelopment. And one of the things that occurred to me is the tremendous amount of work which actually went into preparing and providing this space for artists to work in at amazingly cheap prices for London rents. Um, in my own experience, there was a time going back many years that all of the cracks and the spaces and the bits of London that no one else wanted is where artists would congregate and form communities and bring life into areas. But as kind of happened with the gentrification, the yuppification, the gentrification in the 80s, the desirable spaces, the lofts, the old factories, the warehouses became must-have consumer items and were quickly bought out of the range of artists. So where does an artist go these days and what does an artist do? Um, very soon I'm going to be interviewing numbers of artists and people involved in studio provision and to start off this process I went to meet Duncan Smith who is the founder and head of Akava in West London who as it turns out is one of the largest and possibly the oldest studio provider for the contemporary artist in London. So what I'm going to, what you're going to hear coming up here is um, my initial conversations with Duncan discussing what we are going to discuss in the future. So it's often with Isotopica. Here is a piece of the jigsaw of which I should present the rest of the jigsaw in weeks to come. Anyway, let's uh, hear what Duncan has to say about studios. Rickman and Julia Roberts and others. Um, so that was two o'clock, and then I was up again at seven. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You would be a bit tired and dazed. I did the reverse, which was overslept because I was up till about two. Woke up at eight. Decided to have a further nap, and it's half eleven when I woke up, which is too late. And I'm kind of like this. Right. That's my preferred pattern, though. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what I was going to say was that one of the things which I think might be worth discussing is the fact that. Uh, Akiva manages more studios than anyone else in the UK. Mm. Studio buildings, that is. Yeah. There are slightly more artists than a couple of other organisations, but we are certainly one of the biggest of the, uh, of the studio providers. We're also one of the oldest. We've been around since 75 or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. So that's about uh, 37 years, I think. Um, so that would be one thing that would be interesting to, to say something about. Yeah, to look into that history, the sheer logistics of it. Yeah. The other thing which I think is important is that while, like other studio providers, we came about because I wanted the studio uh, to work in. And that's how most studios, yeah. studio organizations start, because artists are looking for somewhere to work. 
Um, unlike most uh, studio providers of that period, at least, from the outset, I was determined that we would not only provide studios, but that we would provide public benefit, that we would both support artists mm. and in some way help to engage those artists with people. Um, not radio, mm. but communities round mm. and about. And it was at a period in uh, the development of uh, studios and art, I guess, in, uh, here in the 70s, when there's a serious polarization between those artists who very much saw art as a uh, research and development process, a kind of extension of the, the Garrett myth mm. of the artist as tortured genius who would be incomprehensible to the rest of the world but get on with um, something profoundly important. Yeah, great Hollywood movie stuff. That one. And the other side of it was uh, people who, uh, and of course they were seen as wankers by the other faction, who saw themselves as being about facilitating community engagement, uh, public art, mm. uh, murals. There were a number of quite good muralists at the time. And they were very much about those things which had become part of the agenda, but which certainly hadn't been up to then. And of course they were seen as misguided social workers by the wankers. Yeah. So you had this polarization, and it seemed to me that it, that was terribly unfortunate. But actually, it's all, art is all of those things. Mm -hmm. it's, it's research and madness and brilliant insights into the nature of the world on the one hand, and it's about um, promotion and engagement mm -hmm. and uh, having a vision shared with others on the other hand. So part of what drove Acrobat from the outset was that uh, attempt to embrace all of those perspectives um, and to to be a really inclusive uh, provision, which would include all those artists, mm. include artists with whatever kind of practice, um, and that would involve itself in educational work, in community work, in professional development work for artists, in putting on exhibitions, as well as providing studios. And it's always had that uh, rather grandiose. Uh, inclusive, holistic was the word I used until it got appropriated by purveyors of products. Of product. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The new age, yeah, um, that's a big theme of mine too, the new age yeah. commodification of all those good things. Yeah, but holistic was a good word in the 70s. Yeah. Um, so that's, that, that's what uh, started mm. uh, the process. And have you always been, it's always been based in West London, has it? It has. Uh, I lived, as I still do, in Hammersmith, mm. and so the first studio was around the corner. It was a, an empty school that I found, just around the corner from where I lived, and I still have a studio there. Okay. But meanwhile, around it grew up um, Acura, which mm. kind of got out of control. Great. Whereabouts in Hammersmith are you? Farrow Road, which is a little place near Brook Green. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with that. I used to live in Glenthorne Road. Oh, yeah. In, we had a series of squats. Oh, right. In the late 70s, early 80s. Right. They were licensed for a while. What mischief and joy that was. Was that from Nottingham Housing Trust? Um, no, it was no. actually through the council that we, we, we licensed. That was quite near the town hall. 
Um, no. Yeah, where the town hall is in Glenthorne Road. Yes. But opposite, opposite there. They've been knocked down now. They were not. We were the last residents there. Right. Almost the last residents. I remember those actually. I was yeah. never in them. No. But I remember they were there. You know. Yeah. We had an injunction to stop the police raiding us because they used to use us as a training ground. Oh, we had great lawyers and we stopped them raiding us. But there's, I've got so many mischief stories from those days you can imagine. Really? Yeah. So, so who else was involved with setting up Ackerman? Well, it was, uh, it was me and, and whoever happened to be my friends. Yeah. Really. But of course, along the way, people started to get involved. Mm-hmm. One of the early stages was the development of connections with people who knew about local authorities mm-hmm. and newspapers and mm-hmm. public opinion and yeah. press releases and all of that stuff, which I knew absolutely nothing about. Mm-hmm. Um, before I was an artist, I was a scientist, but that didn't help either. Um, I always had a, a lovely combination. A slightly um, academic, I suppose, remoteness from trivial things like um, local politics. Mm. Yeah. But uh, I had to find out about it because we soon were threatened with eviction. However, I'm probably telling you more than you want to know at this stage. Not really. But, but I mean, it's, 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 uh, I mean, I'm just because quite often, just when you start something, that's it. And that, that's absolutely perfect. We've kind of got it, and that's a lovely introduction we've got there. Anyway, I mean, that's fine. And I think if you just think about what more you'd like to say if anything else, because it's kind of there, but more about what you're doing now yes. than anything, then we can we can do that. And I think probably work together to make uh, something for resonance. Because it, uh, so many people have no idea where Artist Studio comes from. Me as a practicing artist, I have no idea. And as you're saying all this, I can't believe, how have I missed out on Ackerville, although I've been registered for 12 years? I noticed that. When this place first came up, I yes. came here. But then that's, that's to do with my relationship with my practice and the When you world. told me about that, I looked and saw that you were there on our, on our database. It's from bizarre. I didn't realize you had, millennium, had so many places. Yeah. I don't pay attention. <laughs> well, it's happened in fits and starts because yeah. uh, initially I was being an artist. Yeah. And what, all sort I wanted pra- what sort of practice? I mean, right. That has changed enormously over, As it uh, over the years. Um, I started off. Uh, painting when I was a very small child. My father was an amateur watercolorist, mm. and so I've always done it. So I guess my first practice was watercolor. And by the time I was a teenager, I was I'd done a fair bit of painting um, in all kinds of media. And but then in the 60s, things got a lot more conceptual. And so I was doing um, multimedia installations. Mm. Um, and in fact, that's one of the other things which it might be interesting to talk about in relation to Acura. The Central Space Gallery, mm. which is in Ferro Road, where I set up my studio, yeah. was in the 70s for a period the centre in London for performance art. And then in the 80s, it was certainly one of the more experimental places where mm. a lot of installation work uh, started to develop. Okay. It was at a time when installations were not, as they are now, the staple of yeah. major art council attention. Of course. Um, it's another term almost like holistic that almost has been taken out of context. Yes. And, uh, certainly out of the original context. Absolutely. And at that time, it was quite uh, radical and exciting mm. to 
The cures so and things that there wasn't only that there, but there was that there and that there. Yeah, and, and there's the history of the place. Yeah, exactly. And there's what's going on overhead, mm -hmm. and that's all part of the moment's yeah. experience. And how do we deal with all that? Mm. It's you, you must have some interesting names that have been through. Through well, um, when I first set up the studio, these are old buggers, of course, by now. Yeah. But uh, when I first set up, uh, set up the studios in Fair Road. Uh, next to me was Bruce McLean. Yeah. Who, do you know Bruce? Of course, yeah. very much so. Uh, other people like Stuart Brisley mm. uh, did installations in the yeah. central space. Uh, Tina Keane. Um, yeah. A load of people who became uh, the kind of leading figures in the art schools. Do you remember a film called Ghost Dance? Yes. That's because that had Stuart Brisley performance in it. Yeah. And it's a film I'd refound. I remember watching it. Ken McMullen. Ken McMullen, that's right, yeah. yeah. It's an amazing film. Hello! Hello! Oh, I am! Good! I wanted to see you. Well, I'm here to see you. Excuse me, just one minute. Okay, no rush. Yeah?
So, have you ever wondered what happens to people that go into rehab? People who go on the wagon, uh, people who stop drinking and stop taking drugs and seem to get on with their lives. Those ones who went way, 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 way over the top and um, actually came back to earth. Part of the answer to that is the 12-step program, which was started sometime in the 1940s with two crazed alcoholics having a conversation in Akron, Ohio. This was the very beginning of what rapidly became known as Alcoholics Anonymous and has spread phenomenally and relatively quietly and quite mysteriously too throughout the world into many different forms and fellowships and meetings and it's possible to go to a 12-step meeting as they're known for all their different flavors colors and types pretty much anywhere in the world um whether or not i've got any personal experience of that due to one of the main principles of those fellowships which is anonymity at the level of press radio film and tv i guess you have to know me personally to find that one out but um what i'm going to play today is a really crazy sounding excerpt from the aa big book which is the documentation that started off basically the original group wrote down their experience of how they stopped drinking and actually stayed stopped drinking um it sounds more like William Burroughs and it's a really mad American 1940s God-fearing language. Yet it has the seeds of a very quiet revolution. Um, we shall explore this further in more editions of Isotopical, but for now I'll just leave you with this really rather crazy um, recording. Let the mystery continue. Chapter 5. How it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose, in a general way, what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have, and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. 
Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked Him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Many of us exclaimed, what an order. I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is that we're willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. C, that God could and would if he were sought. Being convinced, we were at step three, which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understood him. Just what do we mean by that? And just what do we do? The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. In trying to make these arrangements, our actor may sometimes be quite virtuous. He may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. On the other hand, he may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. But, as with most humans, he is more likely to have varied traits. What usually happens? The show doesn't come off very well. He begins to think life doesn't treat him right. He decides to exert himself more. He becomes on the next occasion still more demanding or gracious, as the case may be. Still, the play does not suit him. Admitting he may be somewhat at fault, 
He is sure that other people are more to blame. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is his basic trouble? Is he not really a self-seeker, even when trying to be kind? Is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if he only manages well? Is it not evident to all the rest of the players that these are the things he wants? And do not his actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? Is he not, even in his best moments, a producer of confusion rather than harmony? Our actor is self-centered, egocentric, as people like to call it nowadays. He is like the retired businessman who lolls in the Florida sunshine in the winter, complaining of the sad state of the nation. The minister who sighs over the sins of the 20th century. Politicians and reformers who are sure all would be utopia if the rest of the world would only behave. The outlaw safecracker who thinks society has wronged him. And the alcoholic who has lost all and is locked up. Whatever our protestations, are not most of us concerned with ourselves, our resentments, or our self-pity? Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us, seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some time in the past, we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves, and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must, or it kills us. God makes that possible, and there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them, even though we would have liked to. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. This is the how and why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal, and we are his agents. He is the father, and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we passed to freedom. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. We were now at step three. Many of us said to our maker, as we understood him, God, I offer myself to thee, to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. 
Leave me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. We thought well before taking this step, making sure we were ready, that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. We found it very desirable to take this spiritual step with an understanding person, such as our wife, best friend, or spiritual advisor. But it is better to meet God alone than with one who might misunderstand. The wording was, of course, quite optional, so long as we expressed the idea, voicing it without reservation. This was only a beginning, though if honestly and humbly made, an effect, sometimes a very great one, was felt at once. Next, we launched out on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Though our decision was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom, so we had to get down to causes and conditions. Therefore, we started upon a personal inventory. This was step four. A business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. Taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding and a fact-facing process. It is an effort to discover the truth about the stock in trade. One object is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods. They get rid of them promptly and without regret. If the owner of the business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. We did exactly the same thing with our lives. We took stock honestly. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup which caused our failure. Being convinced that self, manifested in various ways, was what had defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease. For we have been not only mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. We listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. We asked ourselves why we were angry. In most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened. So we were sore. We were burned up. On our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, our personal or sex relations which have been interfered with? We were usually as definite as this example. And here the book has set up a table of three columns, referring to the person resented, the cause of the resentment, and what the resentment affects. I'm resentful at Mr. Brown. The cause, his attention to my wife. Told my wife of my mistress, Brown may get my job at the office. Affects my sex relations, self-esteem, fear. I'm resentful at Mrs. Jones. The cause, she's a nut. She snubbed me. She committed her husband for drinking. He's my friend. She's a gossip. Affects my personal relationship, self-esteem, fear. 
I am resentful at my employer because unreasonable, unjust, overbearing, threatens to fire me for drinking and padding my expense account, affects my self-esteem, fear, security. I'm resentful at my wife because misunderstands and nags, likes Brown, wants house put in her name, affects my pride, personal sex relations, security, fear. We went back through our lives. Nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. When we were finished, we considered it carefully. The first thing apparent was that this world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. Sometimes it was remorse, and then we were sore at ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. To the precise extent that we permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile. But with the alcoholic whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal. For when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again. And with us, to drink is to die. If we were to live,
You have been listening to Isotopica with me, Simon Tishko, here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, further details of this show and previous episodes can be found on my website, which is www.theculture.net. If you think you have uh, any problem with drink or drugs as part of the issues raised in this edition in a rather roundabout and oblique way, then you can call the Narcotics Anonymous helpline, which is 0300 999 1212. That's 0300 999 1212. Thanks for listening to Isotopica. Check out the website, details of screenings, events, and various other Tishko World things. And look forward to you tuning in again, same time, same place next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.